when I say Howard Dean, what do you think of? I think of a man who ran for president and lost it all because he screamed. The, the yell heard around the world. Scream. Oh, they yell. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> and the little hop that happened with it. He let loose with this kind of weird sound out of his mouth. Ah, or whatever he did. <laughs> like, yeah. He didn't scream. He yelled. It was. It, he was excited. It was emotion. We all make weird noises. He was excited. He had a moment. Yeah, it was a bad one. It was like the whole, and we're heading to South Dakota. Right? That's, I guess that's just it. I don't even remember why he was screaming. Ah! <laughs> and it just kind of became the main thing everybody wanted to talk about that night is how unhinged Howard Dean had gotten. I mean, it's cited as the make or break moment in this campaign. He just lost credibility at that point. Listen, the media made it a big joke. I guess in this day and age, we would call it a meme. Yeah, I still never figured out why at that moment it changed things. I don't know if it, the same thing would really happen today. Enthusiasm was suddenly his enemy. I was about to say, you know, I, I'm sure there's some disappointed people here. You know what? You know something? The speech was supposed to be a concession speech, and I, you know, I didn't think we'd lost anything. You know something? I mean, the point was made. This was about empowerment. Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin. Because you lose an election one night, you don't suddenly give up and think everything you've done is a waste of time, and I didn't think so. And we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan! So I went out and gave him hell, and it was a lot of fun, and I don't regret a minute of it. We, we have just begun to fight. We have just begun to fight. Howard Dean's falling far and fast here, and he's got no one to blame but himself. Dean suffered two setbacks in Iowa. The first, his disappointing third place finish. The second, and far more damaging, was this. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! From 538, you're listening to the first in our series of election documentaries done in conjunction with ESPN Films, re-examining some of the moments you think you know well from past campaigns. My name is Jody Avergan. And I'm 538 political reporter Claire Malone. Today, the rise and fall of Howard Dean and that moment we all remember in Iowa. Turns out the story is more complicated than just that scream for everyone involved. For the media who played the clip over and over, for viewers at home who couldn't stop talking about it, and for the people in the room that night who heard something very different. It was almost exactly 12 years ago, the evening of the 2004 Iowa caucuses, and Howard Dean, governor from Vermont, had just come in third place. The polls were predicting him to be the winner only weeks before. He'd run a campaign built on energy and emotion. But when he let loose with emotion that night, Howard Dean became a meme and not the president. You have the power to give us foreign policy consistent with American values again. You have the power to take back the Democratic Party. This is Howard you Dean announcing his candidacy for president in June 2003. To take the White House back in 2004, you have that power. And this is Howard Dean today. 
Well, I didn't actually decide to run for president. I just decided I was going to do I just did it. I, I think what people liked about me as a candidate was I, I would say things that they knew were true, but nobody else would say them. And I would be very direct. I, I speak pretty plainly. I'd grown up in an era where two presidents, one of each party, lied to us. And 55,000 people got killed in that war of ours, not to mention the millions of Vietnamese that died because of that. And I just wasn't going to put up with that again. Adam Nagorny is a reporter for The New York Times who followed the campaign and spent a ton of time tracking Dean's rise. He was uh, opposing the war in Iraq, and a lot of Democrats uh, in Washington, including some people running for president, had supported the war in Iraq. And it, you know, that was a very, very big rallying call for him, and that gained him a lot of support early on in New Hampshire and Iowa. Dean for America. At Howard Dean's New Hampshire headquarters, they're hard to miss. Nicknamed Deanie Babies, they are the campaign's computer-savvy teens and 20-somethings. Many who've left college and even jobs driven to beat President Bush. There's a feeling among young people that this is like the great movement of our time. The influx of young supporters meant thousands of Americans were participating in a campaign as they never had before, using technology that was new to presidential elections. Early in the campaign, Dean remembers a conversation he had with his longtime staffer, Kate O'Connor. Kate and I are walking down the street shortly after we decided we were going to do this. And Kate says to me, you're number six on Meetup. And I said, what is Meetup? And she said, it's a website and it's designed to help people who are interested in things like gardening to get together in person once a month in some bar, coffee house, and talk about gardening. I said, really? Huh. About two weeks later, we're walking down the street in Burlington. And she says, uh, you're number two on Meetup. And I said, really? Who's number one? She said, witches. Dean's campaign raised more money online than any campaign before. Again, here's Adam Nagorny. This is the first campaign that really sort of got the idea of raising money through the internet, through grassroots, through relatively small contributions. And one of the young guys came up to me when I was in the headquarters, and I was it was lunchtime, and he said, how's about, Governor, you have a ham sandwich and sit in front of this computer? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, well, Dick Cheney's doing a luncheon for $500,000, $25,000 a couple in Charleston, South Carolina. And if you have this ham sandwich in front of this computer, I'm pretty sure you can outraise him. So I ate my ham sandwich in front of the computer on a webcam, live streamed it. We raised $625,000, and Dick Cheney raised a half a million. Howard Dean's energy and bluntness worked for him and against him. Here's Joe Trippi, Dean's campaign manager. I can honestly say I was often shocked and surprised by things Howard did. Yes, yeah, I mean, it was, you could sort of count on that. Sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say. I say things that are hurtful to people, not out of meanness, but out of clumsiness. The day that Saddam Hussein was captured, I was giving a speech to uh, the foreign policy uh, organization out in LA. The capture of Saddam is a good thing, which I hope very much will keep our soldiers in Iraq and around the world safer. I got news of it. First of all, I didn't t talk to the staff. I didn't call back. I just crossed out stuff in the speech, put in. But the capture of Saddam has not made America safer. Now, that was true. Saddam, the capture of Saddam Hussein didn't make us any safer at all. But it was a moment of great pride uh, for our military and great pride for the country in our military. And it was a dumb thing for a presidential candidate to say. The reporters would say, oh, Dean made a gaffe today. And we knew the definition of a gaffe is when you tell the truth and people in Washington don't think you should have. But in many ways, it was Dean's bluntness that appealed to Democratic voters. 
and to his campaign surprise, the candidates started to catch fire. As Dean tells it now, the buzz and the fundraising may have been a surprise, but he and his team had a plan. Well, going into Iowa, the plan was to come in third and then come in second in New Hampshire and then they'd be the anybody but candidate to whoever the front runner was. But things went perhaps a little too well. A few weeks before the Iowa caucus, Dean was leading in all the major polls. I think we really didn't have any idea how to run the campaign as a front runner. It never occurred to us that we were going to be the front runner before Iowa. And then we arrive at caucus night. As it happens, Howard Dean did come in third, which he says was the plan all along. But primary elections are an expectations game. Seeing Howard Dean finish behind John Edwards and John Kerry was a stunner. Dean's supporters and the media were wondering how the candidate and the campaign would handle the loss. Trisha Enright, Dean's communications director, was dealing with press in the packed hall. And I remember saying, you know, look, he's not gonna, Governor Dean's not gonna hang his head. He is gonna come out of here, he's gonna, he's gonna roll sleeves up, and he is gonna, you know, and he is gonna talk about how we're gonna fight on. So I, I go out, I get on the stage, there's 1,200 kids making so much noise it was like a jet engine in the room. Nobody can hear, I take off my coat, I roll up my sleeve, and so we give this speech, and we're having a great time. And we did have a great time, and the crowd absolutely loved it, and they went crazy. After the rally, Dean's staff and a few reporters went to a local bar. We went back to, to the bar, which you often you do to, you know, lament about the, the evening, but also it's an opportunity to talk about what are, we, you know, what's, what are the next steps on the, on the campaign and, and why, we, you know, uh, we believe that, yeah, this is a disappointment, but it doesn't, count, it doesn't count us out. And out of the corner of my eye, I see video that's running of the governor's remarks from earlier. And you know, there's probably one or more televisions. And I'm like, God, what's amazing is they're all playing the governor's remarks from earlier. They're, they're playing them over and over and over again. And it was at that moment, and it was the same clip right. of, of him clearly, because you can see his face is red, clearly uh, exasperated and, and yelling. And that's the only part they keep playing over and over again. And it was at that moment that I think we realized that, oh my gosh, uh, this is a problem. I didn't really think it was all that bad. My campaign staff realized it before I did, and they came up and said, uh, Gov, we have some bad news for you. And I, you know, I thought they were going to say somebody died. And they explained all about the speech, and I just went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the scream had already taken hold. Howard Dean's falling far and fast here, and he's got no one to blame but himself. Dean suffered two setbacks in Iowa. The first, his disappointing third place finish. The second, and far more damaging, was this. Washington and Michigan! And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Yeah! Oh my God, did you see Dean's speech last night? Oh my God! Now I hear the cows in Iowa are afraid of getting mad Dean disease. Even Dave Chappelle. We're going to go to Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania. We're going to Camp Cool for spring break. And then I'm coming all the way to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. The I Have a Scream speech, they started calling it. It was played 633 times in four days, according to one analysis. That's just on the national networks, not including talk shows or local news. Soon, Howard Dean and his wife were fielding questions like this from Diane Sawyer. 
How often does he lose his temper around you? I can't remember the last time. He just doesn't get that angry. So the narrative of the Dean scream was set. A crazy moment in Iowa had become a full-blown media firestorm. But Claire, hold on. Before we talk about why the media went wild with the sound of Howard Dean screaming, it's worth asking what that scream was in the first place. And for that, we need to take a tour of the Howard Dean scream conspiracy theories. Because there's people out there who kind of think the scream wasn't actually even a scream. Producer Galen Druk is our tour guide to the conspiracy theories. Galen, take it away. Blog posts, message boards, and opinion pieces about the takedown of Howard Dean are all over the internet. I found some threads from just last year. And after searching through the last 10 years of commentary on the topic, two main lines of thinking emerge. The first is basically a media conspiracy theory, like this from a thread I found on Reddit. Someone writes, quote, I watched the whole thing play out, and it was clear that the news media cut his throat deliberately, end quote. We'll get to that, but another line of thinking gets at a fundamental question about whether the scream ever really happened as we all heard it. And that's where we'll begin. First, remember, that night in Iowa, it was loud. I go out, I get on the stage, there's 1,200 kids making so much noise it was like a jet engine in the room. There were thousands of people in the room. It was deafening, it was so loud. We could hardly hear him. Frankly, all we could hear were the sounds of the people cheering. Trisha Enright wasn't alone. Other people who were in the room that night either didn't hear the scream or thought nothing of it, and neither did Dean. I don't remember doing that the way it came out. I mean, I certainly went, yeah! I'd done that a zillion times. And as I say, none of the print reporters thought much of it, so I assume it was always the same, yeah, that I always did. So why did the people there, along with Howard Dean himself, hear something so different from what everybody heard at home? This is where we have to get a little technical. I paid a visit to Jennifer Munson. She's the audio engineer for the public radio show On The Media and used to work in TV news. I went to her studio and we sat in front of her mixing board for a lesson in news audio. When we looked at the video of Dean that night, Jen immediately recognized the mic he was holding. It's a Sennheiser Evolution Series microphone that was commonly used at these events in Iowa. What does that kind of mic do? What is it used for? It's very specific for stage use, where that microphone is capturing whoever's speaking into it and not much else. The sound of just Howard Dean is what we're all familiar with. It's what broadcast over the airwaves that night. But we want to know what the moment sounded like in the actual room. And there are recordings out there from people who are actually standing on the floor. This is one of the cheering at the exact time that Howard Dean was making his speech. You can't hear it, but we promise, Dean is screaming right now. That's not anything anybody's going to remember from this moment. What we all remember is this. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! So I've taken those two examples and mixed them together to give a more realistic audio representation of what was going on that night. Using the control board, Jen took the feed from Dean's mic and 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 mixed in the feed from the floor 
California and Texas. To demonstrate what it would sound like if you gave them more equal weight. Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. His pitch is exactly the same pitch of the crowd. Despite the example that you mixed, why did everybody at home just hear Howard Dean shrieking? That, I think, is a combination of the particular microphone that he was using and the fact that the engineer mixing this for broadcast didn't mix the room into the scene. In every instance that I know of, there are multiple microphones being sent to the engineer that go out for broadcast. And one of them comes from the camera. One probably comes from some room mics. And one from this microphone that you see in the image. As the engineer, you're supposed to pull all this together to create a representation of what's going on. Other than his voice being isolated, the sound that comes out sounds almost like a shriek. It's not a sound that we're used to hearing. Does that have anything to do with the microphone or how he's talking into it? The sound you hear, I think, is an absolute misrepresentation of the sound that he made. Normally, anybody holding a microphone, the louder they get, the farther they pull the microphone away from them because it starts to then overload the microphone. And I can I can give you an example. I mean... This is me getting louder and louder and louder on the same microphone. And if I were to really hold it and talk to you like this, you get this distortion. And his instinct, because it's so loud in the room, I think is to just try and be heard over the crowd. And so you see in the picture, the microphone is like right in his mouth. He's trying absolutely everything he can to be heard. So what Dean sounded like on TV didn't give us the whole picture. That's one argument of the scream skeptics. But once the media outlets had the isolated audio, why did they play it a whopping 633 times? Again, Joe Trippi and then Trisha Enright. All the, the party establishment attacks were about he didn't have the temperament to be president, that he was too hot-headed, those kinds of things. And I think the press was, media was sort of, sort of handed a gift. Here, here's a great way we can put the exclamation mark on that narrative that the, the establishment had been selling. So, I mean, it got to the point where we could have put him in, you know, in a setting with, with children and puppies, and they'd say, well, I'm surprised he didn't bite the head off of the dog. I mean, it was really, it was once the narrative was there, it was so embedded in their reporting that we, we couldn't get away from it. Even before the scream ever happened, Critics were accusing the media of buying into that narrative. But beyond that, some people think the media actively worked against the guy, or even felt threatened by him. Online, one theory goes like this. Early on, when Howard Dean was ahead in the polls, he went on hardball with Chris Matthews, and he told him, we are going to break up the giant media enterprises. In a blog post at the time, someone wrote that this, quote, amounted to a declaration of war on the corporations that administer the flow of information in the United States, end quote. It's a big claim. To be clear, we don't have any evidence of that kind of coordinated conspiracy. What we do have, though, are admissions by media members themselves that they got carried away. It's a kind of mea culpa, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. This is Diane Sawyer, 
just a week and a half after the Iowa caucus. The president of CBS said, individually, we may feel okay about our network, but the cumulative effect for viewers with 24-hour cable coverage is it, we, it may have been overplayed and, in fact, a disservice to Dean and the viewers, all of us together. And the head of CNN said, we've all been wrestling with this. If we had to do it over again, we'd probably pull ourselves back. Thanks to Galen Drew for that report. Okay, let's take stock. Dean was plugging along. Then he screamed in Iowa. What we saw on TV wasn't the whole truth, but the media still went crazy with it. Simple narrative, Dean got screwed. But it's never, never that simple. Remember. Well, going into Iowa, the plan was to come in third. But once the expectation had been set. I think we really didn't have any idea how to run the campaign as a front runner. There really wasn't ever much of a front runner for the 2004 Democratic nomination. When people led, they led with poll numbers in the low 20s or the high teens. So it was a very wide open contest. This is 538's Harry Anton. Dean was leading in Iowa as recently as two weeks before the Iowa caucus. He was leading in the average of the polls. But then he lost that lead. I could feel it. Some polls were different than others, but I knew the momentum had stopped. We knew or pretty early on that, that we weren't going to pull this out. And the question was, uh, you know, are you going to be able to, to get a ticket out of Iowa? His New Hampshire numbers had fallen by 10 percentage points from where they were in November and December, and nationally he had fallen by already 5 percentage points by the time of the Iowa caucus versus where he was at the beginning of January. So his numbers were already falling as we headed into the Iowa caucus. People think of Dean's Iowa story as one of a sudden fall from grace, but it was more of a fade with a brilliant burnout at the end. Dean's numbers declined rapidly after losing the Iowa caucus. Now, a lot of people subscribe that or ascribe that to the scream itself. But in reality, when you lose the Iowa caucus and expectations were set high as they were for Dean, it's not really surprising. So the fact that Dean ends up losing the New Hampshire primary by 12 percentage points to John Kerry, who also was from next door of New Hampshire down in Massachusetts, really wasn't too much of a surprise. But the media and history don't like a story that's unsurprising or one that's got layers. Here's Nate Silver. It's not one of the easier campaigns to explain, you know, why John Kerry did so well. You can kind of say, well, Iowa's hard to predict, and that's true, but the, the Dean scream was the denouement, I know how to say that word, right? Um, that happened after the events had transpired that made it very difficult for Howard Dean. And here you have one dramatic device that tells a story, which happens to be a really inaccurate story. This is how Adam Nagorny of the New York Times says he would start to write a bio of Howard Dean. I would have high up, I'd say, Mr. Dean, you know, uh, drew attention that he always said was unfair for the way he greeted his third place Iowa caucus finish in a state where he was expected to win, where cameras caught him giving out a loud whoop that came to define him for many people. As we wrap up, it's worth asking whether a whoop like that would have defined Dean in that way had it taken place today. One thing is clearly very different. If you say something over the top, it'll be on more than cable news. If Howard Dean were delivering that speech today, every one of those 3,500 folks would have had their cell phones up in their hands, recording instantaneously those remarks, and they would have been tweeted about. 
you can envision a scenario in which social media makes the scream go hyper viral. But then again, you can envision a scenario in which cable news isn't the only way we see the screen, so there's more context about how loud it was in the room that night. And you can also envision a scenario in which, because there's so much being captured about the campaign every moment, the screen just blows over in one news cycle. You also can't help but think about whether a moment of emotion like Dean's would even seem that outrageous today. And they said that wasn't politically correct. Who cares? Unlike another woman in this race, I actually love spending time with my husband. Asking you to be part of a political revolution. The whole world's on fire. The world is on fire. Yes. This president is a petulant child. Take him out. Get him out of here. Yeah, don't give him his coat. It scares me a little bit because Trump has a little of this. Uh, when he says things that are just outrageous, and uh, in his case, usually not true, um, but there's a certain part of it, you wonder why the polls go up after so he says something outrageous. Well, there was something of that in me. Now, I didn't say anything that it wasn't true, or at least not knowingly, um, but I, I did say some things that outraged people in Washington. The madder people in Washington got, the better in the polls we did. We'll never really know how Dean's emotion would be received today, but there's also more to his story than being a tell-it-like-it-is candidate. 2004 may have been the last time Howard Dean thought he could be president, but it wasn't the end of his political life. Here's how Adam Nagorny would finish his Dean biography. Then I would say, but in fact, his career was much broader than that. He so pioneered health care in Vermont. He was chairman of the Democratic Committee. You know, he's still a force in the Democratic Party in thinking. You know, I mean, people are, people are often more than one event in their life, especially someone like him. I'm not trying to be catty to the person who beat me uh, in, the, in the nominating process, John Kerry. But the truth is, if you talk about a campaign that happened in 2004, our campaign's the one that people talk about. And it, I don't think it's because of me. I think it's because it empowered an entire new generation of Americans to enter the political process. And four years later, those people that worked in our campaign, both the kids who worked in the campaign and the people who voted for us, elected our first African-American president. It's true. If you look at the roster of the team that got Barack Obama elected in 2008, it's full of people who worked with Howard Dean in 2004. They changed the United States in ways that were unimaginable, and that started in 2004. If you were a, a, you know, a gal living in Michigan uh, in senior year of college and gave $5 over the internet, which had never been done before, you felt as though you had as much ownership of that campaign as somebody who had maxed out or had given $2,500 at, at a fancy event in California. Here's Nate Silver. I mean, I think the importance of, of organizing and using the internet as a means for organizing proved to be very important. I mean, that's his real legacy. So he wound up being, I think, a much more important figure in, um, in the kind of history of the 21st century Democratic Party than people might imagine. Um, but he didn't achieve that success himself in, in 2004. For what I was trying to accomplish, I did win. Um, for what I was trying to accomplish was, it turns out, not to be president, although I, that's what I thought I was trying to accomplish, but what I was really trying to accomplish was the transformation of a, of a country, of a great country that I think had lost its way. And that, in fact, happened as a result of 2008. And we're still having the battle, I and mean, it's not over yet. But it was the first organized battle of the new generation to transform the country, and they will win. We 
We have just begun to fight. We have just begun to fight. Thanks for listening to 538's first elections podcast documentary. If you want more, be sure to check out the ESPN Films version of the Dean Scream story. It's got more interviews and other parts of the reporting not included here. You can watch it right now at 538.com slash Dean Scream. It's really good. My name is Jody Avergan. And I'm Claire Malone. This episode was produced by Asta Chattervedi, Galen Druk, and Emma Jacobs with help from Ryan Nantel. It was engineered by Chloe Prasinos and Stephen Jackson. 538's podcast editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our politics editor is Micah Cohen. Our thanks to director Brian Storkel and the ESPN Films team for collaborating with us on this project. Remember, there's lots more to watch, hear, and read at 538.com slash DeanScreen. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Michigan, Washington, Michigan!